You know, I, what I like about uh, serving here is that uh, I, I get a lot of response from people. There's, that's good and bad. Um, but I really do. I like that response. Um, and, and I do like the good. And I do like what, you know, comes up with concerns. It's, it's all that stuff helps us grow, become um, more mature, and, and strengthens our unity. But I got a, an email Last Sunday, right after the, uh, the service, um, it was, it, it, I was at home that afternoon doing some um, things on the, on the computer, and, and this popped up, and it said, Hi, Kevin. The sermon about unity was refreshing to hear today. My husband and I have been attending a Wyzetta for the last 26 years. I am a choir member, which keeps me busy Wednesday and Sundays. My real passion is being a volunteer on Tuesday nights with Christ for people with developmental Abilities. Some of you are familiar with that group that meet their um, mentally challenged or slow in other disabled ways. If you are interested in seeing unity in action, this is the place to see it firsthand. Our leader and founder is Reverend Don Anderson, and under his leadership, there is unity. I've been volunteering for the last five years, which is kind of a neat thing when I was reading this. I've been here for 26 years, and as you go on in the last five years, found her passion. So... Don't get too worried if you're not right yet into your passion. As you seek to know and grow, God moves you into that because he prepares you with all the things in your life. Anyway, for the last five years, you've been in her passion. And I was blown away the first night I visited the group. And after five years, feel even more passionate today. What sets this group apart is that I have never heard a bad word about Don or complaining about how things are run. All the volunteers so enjoy being there, and we all consider it a privilege to be there doing the work. We get more out of the experience than we put into it, and yet there is a diversity of abilities, not just of the volunteers, but also the participants. Don would tell you that God has blessed him with volunteers that are second to none, and that we all work to get well together, and we all have a passion for the ministry. I would tell you that it is God at work. It is also unity. Uh, thanks, and yours in Christ. And after I read this, I was reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in the first letter to the followers of Jesus there in this Greek city called Corinth, where he said, How the weak and apparently foolish shame the strong and apparently wise. Isn't that amazing? Oh, that we'd all be developmentally disabled in one sense, or recognize it, because we really are. And I just thought, what a neat thing here in that group of, of people who are they're just thrilled to be there, and they're thrilled to be a part of it, and how God uses that, um, which we might sometimes think is slow or weak, to demonstrate his great glory. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. In so many different ways we can learn of you. It is so true that in your body, you take those things which we see as weak and you use them as a demonstration of glory and power. And thank you, God. Continue to bless this group on Tuesday nights. Continue to bless each and every person here. God, use this time so that your spirit would speak to our hearts about what it means to walk with you and to pursue together a unified heart in your presence. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to share with you from Psalm 133 as I've been looking at this series on unity. In fact, after the first message, when I gave that one, I shared with the team that plans these services, I'm going to kind of go a little different direction than what I had planned. I'm going to stay on this whole idea of unity and what does it mean, how do you develop it, what does it look like. I was going to go a different direction, but chose to continue in this direction. And so 
As we talked the first week about unity and, and the incredible power, that explosive power that comes to what God has done there, and then we looked at last week this all-out effort that Paul tells us to, to do and to be a part of. Psalm 133 is this beautiful song of the blessing, the enjoyment, just the good pleasantness it is to be in the midst of people where your hearts are one and at peace. David writes this after he had actually brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of the home of God, into the city of Jerusalem. For years that Ark had been away, and, and, and even through the, the, the reign of Saul, the king before him, the Ark was out in some city all off on its own. The home of God was there. There comes a time when David starts to rise in power and Saul's power, power begins to, to fade. There's a civil war, this time of disunity. And during this time of what appears to be disunity, God is really creating a greater unity to the point when David becomes king. David actually comes to the city of Jerusalem, which at that point hadn't been taken by the people of Israel. He takes this city called Jebus, where the Jebusites lived and ruled, and it was a stronghold within that land. And David, by the might and the power of God, actually overtakes that city and calls the city the, the city of Zion, the place where God will dwell. And he's so excited, he wants to get the home of God there. So he goes and gets the Ark of the Covenant. And through a series of times, the second time finally gets the Ark up to the city of Jerusalem and pitches the tent for God, the tent that traveled through the wilderness that had been put away somewhere, now is finally up. Here is the people of God having the city of God, and in the city of God is the home of God, and God lives. And in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, Moses made this command. He said, I want the people of God living throughout the land at least for three times a year to come up at a time of festival to celebrate what he has done in their lives. And, and these different festivals would have different meanings. And, and David, it, it appears, maybe called together one of these festival gatherings according to the word of God. And at this time, prior to it, excited about the home of God being present in Jerusalem, writes a song, Psalm 133. And I think he probably distributes that song throughout the nation Israel. And, and these people, it said that through the years that would follow, would begin to take this, this hymn, that was this, this psalm that was created, and they would sing it. Because with unity established after years of division, David re, re, reflects on it, and, and in writing this song calls people to sing it together. Psalm 133. I'm going to ask you to, to read this with me. And it begins, verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Stop. Anybody who has two boys, anybody who has an older brother or younger brother, has lived in that family setting. I have an older brother by two years, two years older than me. You know what it's like to have unity, right? When the boys get along. Right? Let's read this again with, with a little more understanding and heart, okay? How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. The first thing I want to share with you is very simply this whole idea, and I'm going to run this through, through the, the whole psalm, because verse 1 talks about this sense of unity, and the idea that unity ebbs and flows. As we look at each of these points, we're going to be talking about how unity ebbs and flows. 
And then in verse 2, he describes what it's like. And then verse 3, he gives another description. And then he ends it with unity in this place. God commands blessing, even eternal life. Unity ebbs and flows. So when it does, and you experience it, David is basically saying to all the people and to us, be grateful when it flows. The words how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity suggest that it's not a constant, continual experience. It is foolishness in not living in reality to think that every day you're going to experience unity and a sense of pleasantness and goodness in your marriage, correct? It's foolish to think that your family will always go without any conflict or any sense of ebbing with regard to the unity and peace which you experience. It's foolishness to think that in work. It's foolishness to think it in school. It's foolishness to think it in, in a team that you might serve, be a part of and athletically or at any kind of ministry you may be involved with. David says it well, how good and pleasant it is when there is unity. The implication being that in this sin-stained, self-centered world in which we live, unity, when you experience it, shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, you should rejoice. Some of you are preparing for a Thanksgiving holiday, correct? You're, you're thinking about um, family coming, and some of you are delighted and excited about this Thursday and getting the whole family together and the stories that will be told, um, reminiscing, the opportunity to find out what's going on in people's lives you haven't seen for a while. Just getting together again, and you are anticipating it, and you look forward to the unity, and you're rejoicing, right? But not everybody is there. And there are people right now who are dreading the holiday. They're dreading the fact that home is really about this place of intimacy and this place of peace and this place where home is supposed to be people being most present with what's going on in their lives and, and being able to be most real with one another. And they're going into this experience and they're afraid or they're nervous or they're fearing because there ever hasn't been unity and there won't be again. See, unity can be hard to come by. Sometimes as hard as trying to get a governmental bailout. Um, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. David could have written those words in a number of different ways, but because he had actually seen and experienced this lack of unity in both his family history and in his personal life, he writes this, that when you experience it, be glad. He was well aware of it when he looked at his family of origin. In fact, his own people's personal history the tribes of Israel, if you look back and if you were to open like a photo book or the album of the history of the people of Israel, you'll find that unity ebbed and flowed. In fact, it ebbed a lot more than sometimes it flowed. In fact, all you have to do is go back and you'll see division, jealousy, and hatred mark the sons of Adam, the sons of Isaac, the sons of Jacob, even the sons of Jesse, the father of David who wrote this psalm. Think back, Cain and Abel. You take a look at the first pictures. Here are these two brothers, and they end up in total disunity, one hating the other and murdering. Jacob and Esau. Here are two twins who don't just get along. Jacob, born a little bit after the older one, Esau, at some point steals the birthright from his brother. And then the brothers are at war. And then for a number of period of years, they're separated from one another. Think about it. When they had their Thanksgiving dinners... Jacob didn't show up at the meal. There was a huge hole there. And everyone experienced that sense of strife. Joseph and his brothers. Here is these 12 brothers, and Joseph being the 11th, the youngest being the 12th Benjamin. But the 10 above him, 
There are all kinds of hatred and anger and jealousy. There's, there's anger over the fact that Joseph has these overzealous dreams that he someday can rule over them. There's jealousy over this fancy coat that their father gave to Joseph. Joseph is the favorite son, and one day he's found missing. The brothers come back with the coat with the many colors, with one more color stained on it, which is that of blood. Torn and disheveled, and they present it to the father whose heart is broken. As they say, we don't know what happened to Joseph, but this is what we found. Can you imagine the next four or five Thanksgiving dinners at that table? Everyone's sitting around in the heart of the father. His heart is broken and there's no joy. As he is still in sorrow about this favorite son whom he's lost. And you know what? The women weren't such angels either. There were Hagar and Sarah, the wife and handmaiden of Abraham, with the continual infighting. Hannah and Elkanah. Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And the continual, it says, bitterness that occurred within that home as a result of the two. And then you have to look at David, and you'll see that David didn't come from this idyllic family. He had older brothers, but they really didn't always get along. In fact, one day, David is walking up to the field of battle. They've been standing there for a number of days and standing before them, shouting out all kinds of obscenities and standing there defying the God of Israel is this big guy named Goliath. This huge giant Goliath is shouting out these things and yelling these things, and David comes up carrying the, the lunch for his older brothers who were there at war. And he starts asking the different guys around there, why is this guy standing up here defying the God of Israel? Why don't we do something about it? Isn't the king going to give something to somebody if they were to do something about it? And David's going on. And then you read in Scripture, 1 Samuel 17, verse 28, here is Eliab, the oldest brother of David. It says that when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, Eliab burned with anger at David and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom... Did you leave those few sheep in the desert, you spoiled, rotten, last baby of the family? I kind of added that little part there, but um, it's in there, I think. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You come down only to watch the battle. I think everyone knows how bad and rotten it is when there's strife and division with the home. When David looks back and reflects on the life of the, the tribes of Israel and reflects on his own family. I think we all know how bad and rotten it is when there's division within the office. How bad and rotten it is if you're on a team and you really want your team to excel and there's all kinds of strife. How rotten it is when you're in a ministry and people aren't getting along and they're backbiting gossiping and all kinds of things are happening. How rotten and bad it is. But David says... How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters and moms and dads and uncles and aunts and cousins and friends and co-workers and ministry partners get along. Now I want you to think for a second. As we think of this Wednesday night, of this time of, of celebration and worship, let me just ask you to think for a second. Where in your life do you experience unity? Are there some places? It may not be right now in your relationship with a spouse. It may not be with your kids, but it may be with somewhere at work. It may be at your home, and that might be the only place. That is something to be grateful for. That is something to be really, really glad about. Because unity does have been flowing. If you're in the midst of a flow, 
wherever it may be, be grateful. That's what this psalm is about. Let me just ask you to bow your head. And in this place, just quietly before the Lord, just silently in your heart, just think about it. If there's a place where there is unity, maybe in a ministry, it may be with some friends, would you just say, God, thank you for that? Tell him, it is good, thank you. It is pleasant, thank you. Father, thank you for those places where you're allowing us to experience unity. It is a gift from you. Amen. Unity ebbs and flows, so do all to help it flow. That's another thing David kind of uh, would let you know if he was here. Unity does ebb and flow, so do all to help it flow. Paul's advice last week when we looked at this passage was basically in Ephesians 4, do all you can, an all-out effort to, to allow for this unity to flow within the lives of people. And I think Paul did this because he understood how important unity is. He understood that when there is unity, it allows for the blessing of God to flow. That's what verses 2 and 3 are really about. It's about this blessing of God, the oil. It's about the dew that falls. It falls from heaven in a sense. It falls from above. It is God blessing. And when there's unity, if you're a part of helping make it happen, you're a part of allowing blessing to flow. So do all that you can within your means to make it happen. It's exactly what David did. Because he knew exactly what it meant when there was unity would flow. He worked towards unity. And he did not necessarily, though, work for a, what I call a superficial unity or a pseudo kind of intimacy. So often it's easy for people, especially people who say they're following after God, to settle for something that's pseudo or less than real, true, deep unity. In fact, if you look at the life of David, you'll find that what David wanted more than anything was not unity. Our goal, or David's goal, wasn't really even unity. His goal was this. It was the presence of God. It was the Spirit of God. It was a unity that is of the Spirit. So that when he sought the Spirit of God, when he sought God's presence, as a result of seeking God's presence, unity occurred. In fact, as you look at his life, it might look in some ways that David was more of a divider than he was really a unifier. People in the time when David was, was beginning to um, grow in his abilities and his prestige within, within the nation of Israel, it could have been easy if you were King Saul and people within his court to look at David as not some kind of unifier, but some kind of upstart, ambitious young man who wanted Saul's throne. It's real easy to make that case. But David wanted truth. David wanted God's presence more than anything. And so he sought after God's presence. He wanted God there in a, in a day and an age when Saul, who was a king, who ruled out of his flesh, so to speak, out of his natural abilities. If you read the story of, of Saul, you'll see that Saul came into power in a time when Israel was very weak. In fact, the Philistines were raiding them and God calls this person, Saul, into the position as being king. And as king, he comes and he, he leads the people. There's a greater sense of protection under Saul. The kingdom has grown, actually, and, and the Philistines aren't attacking as much. So things have gotten better, but it's all under this, this guise of the flesh. It's under the, the strength of his own power and his might. And David comes along, and he, I don't think he even gets it, but he's seeking after truth. He's seeking after God's presence. He wants more than anything for God's presence. He doesn't care to hold the position and the power and to be, in a sense, admired by people. He just wants God. And he'd do anything for God. It's kind of like if you've ever been in a situation where you bring truth, and you're trying to bring the presence of God into a dysfunctional kind of home setting. 
I mean, just think of it that way. You think of yourself, you think of a person who is going in and they're getting treatment for alcoholism. They start to get really deadly honest about what's going on in their life. And then they, they come back into the home setting and they push this honesty. And there's this division that occurs. And that often happens when you start moving towards true, deep unity. When you put God as the center of what your unity is to be so that his truth begins to flow, you'll find that just like in David's case, it doesn't look real good at first. In fact, unity, you look at the person like David and you go, man, he's not really so much a unifier. He's just a divider. Look at what the the case they could have brought against David. They could have easily said David was just ambitious He wanted the throne. If anybody was standing around that day when David came and he was looking at Goliath and and they overheard David's older brother. Remember, they could easily take in what David's older brother said in in this words, I know how conceited you are, David, and how wicked your heart is. What's the implication? Make people think you're after God's honor and presence, David. It's quite obvious that through all your military exploits, through what you are seeking to do and what you're seeking to accomplish, it's not really about God and his presence, David. It's about what you want, David. It's about your ambition. It's about the fact that you really want the throne. In fact, you could go back to King Saul and to his court and say, guess what? I heard it with my own ears. His oldest brother made it very clear that David isn't really about God's presence. David isn't really about seeking after truth and, and what is right. David's really about after himself. But what's really interesting about that is if you listen to that, that's really just a projection of of the older brother's heart onto David. Right? That's what David, that's what Eliab wanted for himself. Not David. You could build the case because David really, if you think about it, you could go around and say not only is David kind of conceited and he's doing this all for himself, but you can even tell because look, he's getting close to Jonathan. And Jonathan is Saul's son. And if you really want to get to the throne, what do you do? You get tight with someone in the family. He's just using Jonathan. Not only that, David loved praise. Do you ever watch David when he walks through towns? As he walks through towns, the people, and especially the women, are standing around saying, Saul slays his thousand, but David slays his tens of thousands. And he walks through the town and he doesn't even tell them to be quiet. Hey, David's just an ambitious divider. Not only did he love praise, it's quite clear that David was gunning for the throne. Why else would he secretly, in the night, one night, leave the kingdom, leave the court, run out to the wilderness, and then, as it says in 1 Samuel 22, gather around himself 600 of those in distress or in debt or discontent? Let's face it. If you're seeking unity, you wouldn't gather the disenfranchised of the kingdom around you, would you? Unless you're in the wilderness and what your heart is is for God and those who are coming around you are for the same thing. Think about it. In that day, either David was out for his own glory, seeking to establish his own personal dynasty, or David was seeking God's glory and he was waiting for God to establish his presence. And if you closely examine the life of David, you'll find that at every turn he sought the presence of God and worked toward unity. Let's build another case. Here's King Saul, living in his flesh, seeking to do things in his, in his own power, living with this court of, of rulers around him, holding this power. David comes in seeking the presence of God, doesn't even really realize what he's doing. He's wanting truth. He doesn't want just the flesh. He wants the spirit of God to be present among the people. 
He comes in with that. He realizes, as God often does, that when people push for the presence of God, what first seems to be disunity is really about a guy whose heart's for unity because he wants God more than anything. You could build this case if you look at his life. After a couple spears being thrown at David and, being, and missing him, you, you kind of look at David and go, he's a pretty smart guy to leave the, that area, right? Leave the court? I mean, after you're playing some music and the king throws the second spear and it goes through your robe and pushes against the wall, it's pretty, pretty wise to run. And so that's what David does. Instead of staying in an abusive situation, instead of remaining loyal in the midst of that abuse, Finally, Jonathan comes to him and says, David, you've got to go. And so he runs. And David goes into the wilderness, and those hungry for God's presence and the kind of unity that comes through the Holy Spirit end up joining David there. They want what David wants. And then on a number of occasions, you think about it, David had all the opportunity in the world to kill Saul. There's a couple of different occasions. So all David had to do is throw the spear and pin Saul to the ground, and he doesn't. In fact, as he's had opportunity to do it on a couple of occasions, his men that he's with begin to finally start saying, what is with you? Why in the world don't you take the opportunities? God told you, he promised, he said that you would be the next one on the throne and you have a golden opportunity and you don't do anything. What is, you really don't want the throne, do you, David? And David goes, I only want what God wants. And I want it God's way. And if it means that for a period of time there is this civil war, there is this battle between the spirit and the flesh for the spirit to be given birth, that's what I hunger for. I want to do it in God's way. I don't want the throne. I want God to be on the throne. And so as men begin to start wondering, does he even have the, the, the ability, the wherewithal to lead? And then you would think, even after Saul dies, so he doesn't want to touch God's anointed, and they finally get this message that he's going to do it God's way. Saul dies, and David has all the opportunity now to become king. Two of the tribes come around David, they anoint him and say, you are going to be our king. And in the southern part of Israel, they anoint him as the king. They could easily, David had the ability to go up and to wipe out the other tribes and to make by force this kingdom united. And he doesn't do it. He continues to wait until God, in his own way, in his own time, as he seeks after God, God brings together those ten tribes who willfully choose to anoint him so that the whole nation comes together around unity as he seeks the Lord. And as that unity develops and unfolds, the next verse tells us God blesses. God blesses. And so, if David was here, he'd say to every one of us here, Seek after God with all your heart, because you need to know unity of the spirit isn't easy. It will look at times that things are dividing out, but it is worth every effort you give. It is worth every effort to see God bring this about, because such unity is not man-made, but God created, initiated, and established. And that kind of unity is good and pleasant when it flows. And unity ebbs and flows, and when it flows, boy, does God bless. When people seek together after God's heart, His way, and He brings that together, He has said in His Word that through unity He will do explosively unbelievable things. He will bless greatly. And so David gives two word pictures here. 
And they're the word pictures, if you read them, really relate to people in his day. The first is this. Unity of God's people, he says, is like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the Colorado's robe. It's really quite picturesque. Imagine, if you would, this guy with this beard and this robe standing in front of me. And, and let's just say I have, and it wouldn't be like this. It would be like a huge bucket. And I had this big, huge bucket of oil. Let's say it's a, a viscous kind of thick 10W30 kind of oil, right? It's not car oil. Anyway, um, and, he, and he just pours it on the head. And you see it just coming down his head, down his beard, and down his robe. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking to myself, so what's so great about that? Right? Which makes you have to dig deeper into Scripture. Because he's talking about a kind of, of oil that is not, not what we're kind of aware of. If you go back to Exodus chapter 30, he tells you how this oil is made. It is a fragrant, perfumed kind of oil. In verse 22, it says, God spoke to Moses and he said to him, here's how I want you to make it. Here's the recipe for the oil. Take the best spices, 12 and a half pounds of liquid myrrh, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cane, 12 and a half pounds of cassia, using the standard sanctuary weight for all of them, and the gallon of olive oil. Make these into a holy anointing oil, a perfumer's skillful blend. Can you imagine that? They're taking all this stuff and they're mixing this thing together. And the, the aroma wafts through the area as they're making it. You can just smell this. It's beautiful. Because you're living in this land where it's hot and arid and, and you get sweaty and you don't have showers every day so you can't smell good. You know, you want your neighbor to use something but he doesn't have anything. So, but you smell this incredible fragrant aroma which reminds them of the presence of God. And he tells us in a verse later, in verse 29, a couple of verses later, he says, take this and begin to pour it on the tent of meeting, on the ark of the testimony, on the table and all its articles, everything where God supposedly be. Here's God's house. Every utensil, every table, everything. Pour that stuff so it just stinks with this aroma. So that it just is so full and fresh. And then what I want you to do is to pour it on this person. His name is Aaron, who has this, this robe and beard. And, and, you, and not just a little bit. I want you just to just liberally just douse him with it so that he smells of this. Because I want you, in a sense, he says, I want you to make everyone and everything holy. Consecrate them so they'll be soaked in holiness. So that anyone who so much as touches them can't help but walk away with the fragrance. He's saying what I want you to realize is that when people seek after God with all their heart, and when unity begins to, to flow, even though you go through difficult times, it ebbs and flows so God brings the flow. That when the flow comes, it's like oil, his oil fragrant, like the Holy Spirit just pours out upon people. And so when people go, as they go throughout life, and the you leave here and you go to the place you work and other places, you, by the fragrance of his presence, touch people's lives and they can't help be touched by it. They can't help sense the presence of God. So Paul talked about when the fragrance of this aroma just wafted everywhere because of the presence of God. That's my desire. That's our desire, isn't it, as a body? Oh, God, pour out your spirit so that you would be so glorified, so that it would be good and it would be pleasant. As we come together and we worship you and as we seek you, you begin to do the things in our life that we can't do by ourselves. You begin to straighten up things in our life that we would really love straightened up because if it was straightened up, it would make a difference in our intimacy and relationships with other people. Isn't that what we long for? 
How much more important it is, he says, that we understand that this unity is good and pleasant. It ebbs and flows, and, and as it ebbs and flows, recognize to be grateful for it when it does flow. And then when it does ebb and flow, do all that you can do to help make that flow. And then stand there and recognize when it ebbs and flows, when it actually flows, you'll be blessed. Just like oil that pours down. And then he gives another image. He gives this image of, of the, uh, the mountain. The unity of God's people is so good and pleasant, it is as if dew, the dew of Hermon, were falling on Mount Zion. Again, you have to have a little understanding of the people in the day and the geography of where they lived. Mount Hermon towered above the northern part of Israel. It was this, this, this mountain that, that as people would walk by it in this very arid and dry land, they would see this mountain, and up at the mountain was, was the dew that would come because it was so high up, and that mountain would have streams and rivers that would come down, and as the rivers would flow down, there would be this lavish, lush, fertile kind of growth all around the mountain. And as they would walk by it in this arid and dry land with these rocks and, and all the things and dust around them, they would see this beautiful mountain that has this 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 dew falling upon it. And he says, like the dew you see at Mount Zion when you walk by it, when you see that, when you look at Mount Zion, which is really this little mount on the city of Jerusalem, which was the stronghold that, that God gave to the people. He says, when the people come like that, you're like dew. It's like God himself who comes upon the people. And as he comes upon the people, there is lavishness and lush growth. There is the opportunity for God to bless people when they come together in unity around the Spirit of God. I tell you, God wants us to experience that. It's good. It's pleasant. And I don't think David ever... I don't think when, when God said, Seek me after your heart, with all your heart, and David did that, and as he continued to seek God, as he continued to work with all his strength towards unity, to bring everyone, as he tried to bring them together, even knowing there would be people who would dissent and would call him a divider, and people in their flesh would say, this guy's off for himself. As they continued to walk behind David, and as he continued to develop this unity, he had no idea, I don't think, of the blessing that would come into his life and into the people's life as he sought God. You know what God did? God at one point as he works through David, gives him these incredible victories. He expands the territory of the kingdom beyond what David or any people could ever think would be possible. Think about that. Here is this little nation Israel. In the middle of the path between all these great powers, God takes this little nation under this king named David who sought God and brought together people unified. And through unity, this incredible thing, he expanded this nation and its reach all the way down to Egypt up to Syria. He expanded this nation by its territory all the way down to the Nile, all the way to the Euphrates. Here was this little country becoming this huge, big country. He never imagined that. He never imagined the fact that God would not only extend the territory of this land, but the duration of his own dynasty, his kingdom. Here is David, this little guy who comes from the shepherd fields, and he becomes king. And then one day God comes to him and says, guess what, David? I'm going to bless you so that someday you will know that, that, that always someone will sit on the throne. You will always have an heir on the throne. So from David all the way down to the birth of Jesus Christ, here comes Christ who sits on the throne, who for eternity sits on the throne. David had no idea that his dynasty, God would bless forever. He expands this kingdom and territory, expands this and, and extends this kingdom by duration through this dynasty. And then he does this. He basically exalts the reputation of David for all time. You hear the name David in any church today, in any place in Israel. And what do you think? What an incredible man of God. 
What a great leader. What a great dynasty he built. What a great kingdom and empire that was under his hand. And I have to share with you folks, as you seek God and you seek God in unity in your family and your marriage and, and as in, in all these places, as you seek after God, you can't imagine the blessing he wants to bestow. I just... I. I wrote down notes here and I don't have time to go through them, but I have to tell you one of the coolest things that I look in my life early on in my life and my marriage as I began to work with all the dysfunction of my own family of origin, began to process through them, began to seek for truth, even though it was hard and difficult and, and things were confusing. And, and, and I look at how God has taken my relationship with my wife and with my family and how God is blessed. I can't imagine it. I couldn't have back then. And the friends and the things God has done. And he wants that for you. He wants it for us. He wants it for people that you work with, that you rub shoulders with. And so I ask, do you want that blessing? Do you want that blessing? Well, last Sunday, I'm finishing the, I, I, I'm finishing the message, but just before I, and I started the message, if you remember, I talked about God coming and, and, and taking this compound fracture created by our sin and selfishness within this world and beginning to write relationships with him and with one another. And I'm talking about this compound fracture. And out of the corner of my eye, I see Dr. Mike, Mark Swantowski, some of you know, who is a leading orthopedic surgeon, world-renowned. And I get a little nervous when I'm thinking about talking about compound fractures and I see a doctor making notes. <laughs> and I'm... I'm going through the message, and, and I get done, and I, I, I walk down, and I talk to some individual, and I see Dr. Mark coming, walking up, waiting to talk to me, and I'm going, shoot, I must have said something that wasn't making sense. And so I turn to him, I say, I say Mark, I say, how you doing? He goes, Kevin, a really neat thing. I say, well, let me, and he starts to share with me. He says, I want to share with you something you said. There's an incredibly great principle about what you're talking about. That's why I'm, now I'm intrigued. And he goes, you know, I do orthopedic, these compound fractures all the time. I said, yeah, I know that. And he goes, what's yours was really cool. He said, when you work on a compound fracture, if you start to really give your energy to try and take the little pieces and, and, and kind of get them in place and fuse them together, you know what happens in a compound fracture? It increases the infection. So if you give your attention to those little pieces, it increases the infection. And then what happens is it, it doesn't ever actually heal. It just It's much, much more difficult to even get it to heal if it's going to heal at all. He said, but when you take the compound fracture and you take the bigger parts, even if they don't match up well, but you take those two or three bigger parts and you get them in order, what happens is really almost miraculous. The infection, the possibility of it goes way down. And the healing goes way up and, and somehow almost miraculously it fuses together into this unity of this oneness. And he said, isn't that cool? I said, yes, yeah, really cool. He says, a really neat principle there. And I said, yeah, I can think about four or five of them. And I started thinking about it. I thought, you know, how cool that is in a, in a, in, in a person's life. When your life is a mess and it's all over the place and you're trying to grab these little things and you're worried about these little things. And, and God's saying, if you just worry about the big things, get right with me and yourself. These little things seek first my kingdom, my will, my hunger after my heart. And I will bring these two things together, yourself and myself, and all those things will be added unto it. Or a family. As you dedicate your children and have children. So often we just start going, oh, we got this one child. And, and as they get older, you're still worried about this one child. And this little this piece out here. And, and often God is saying, if you guys would just fuse together with me at the husband and wife level, 
Get really real and deep and do the hard work of the kind of intimacy and get to know yourself and and the patterns that have created possibly some of this. God does the fusing of that little piece. About a month ago, I was praying and I was thinking about the church and I was going, God, this is really incredibly kind of cool as well. Because as Mark shared that with me, I was thinking about a month ago, I started praying. I said, God, you know, if we just have the staff unified and the elders unified and the ministry leaders and we start bringing these things together, I bet you will just fuse this together. That was so cool. When Mark stood there and said that. And God's doing that. I'm so excited to be a part of it. I'm so excited to see, because I can't imagine, nor can you, what God has in store for us as we move together. As we celebrate the times when it flows. As we do all that we can to help it flow. And then we can only sit back and go, but by the grace of God, He blesses when it flows. I'm going to ask two people to come up and just do a quick illustration. Some of you have seen this, and it's just a good visual. It was shared with me this week when I was sharing some of this stuff. And I'm going to ask if they would show first by going ahead. I'm going to get this right and put all the little pieces of rice in. And and then these these are not walnuts. I'll kind of show you. These are kind of pomegranates that have been dried. Okay. And if you put the little stuff in first. And then try and put the walnuts in, or the uh, pomegranates in. Yeah, good job. Try and get them all in. Squish them in. No, it won't happen. Okay, go ahead. And if you want to go ahead and put those in. And so we put the dried pomegranates in first rather than the little rice. Okay, let's see what happens now. Just like as God says, unity when it happens, whether evil or good, has incredible power in all of nature. If you want to experience the good and pleasantness of unity, you begin with the most essential parts, the big things, the significant things. And it all begins to flow. I want to ask you to stand as we pray. As you're standing there praying in a moment, if you would like and want someone to come and pray for you, we'll have a prayer team up here. But I just want to guide you through just a few moments of prayer. I want to give you an opportunity to say, God, you know, things aren't right in my life right now. I'm trying to grasp all these little things, trying to get them in order. And the big thing in my life with regard to my relationship with you is just out of sorts. And I just know how much... I may not understand it, but I know that you say you love me. So, God, if that's your heart, just would you get those big things right now before God and yourself? Some of you are in a situation where you're kind of saying, I know what some of those things are, and I want unity in this place, but the big things are out of sort. And as you seek after God and seek to go and do what's right, you might find, like David, things start to get worse all of a sudden. People might even look at you as you seek after God in this situation, as you move into this kind of dysfunctional situation as a person who is really trying to divide and really you're just trying to bring real, real truth, real peace. 
if that's your heart, I just want to pray for you. God, be with each and every person who's moving into these places, seeking to be real peacemakers, not trying to fake it, not trying to make something that's pseudo, but God, that's real. Some of you are in a position right now where maybe at work or maybe on some kind of team you're a part of, you know you need unity. Would you just ask God, like David did so often, he just inquired of the Lord, said, God, what should I do? God will answer. He'll lead you to those big things. Just step out in faith and obey Him. And all of us, God, look at places in our life where unity is flowing and we say, thank you, thank you, thank you. May you be blessed in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.